0: Most people are not working with a mainframe. They just don't realize that whenever you're doing a credit card transaction or uh, flying or doing any type of insurance claim and so on, you're touching the mainframe. When you tell people that the workers on the mainframe growing double did it every year, people are not on the mainframe get quite surprised. So for me, it was kind of like a wake-up call when I started to work on the mainframe six years ago. And what's been really exciting since then is to see how fast the technology on the mainframe is evolving.
1: Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined in the studio by Per Kroll. Per is Senior Director for R&D in the R&D space for Mainframe Division at Broadcom. Pear, great to have you on the show. Thanks for making time to join us.
0: Hi, Des. Great to talk to you.
1: Now, you're a worldwide R&D lead for DevOps, which we'll get into in a moment, and Open Mainframe and AIOps, and a whole range of other stuff around that. It's a worldwide engineering manager role, from what I understand. I'd love to delve into that a little bit in a moment, but uh, how are things with you? Have you had a great day so far?
0: I have a fantastic day. So I've been on this job for uh, two months, and um, uh, I'm really enjoying it. I'm back to the office, so uh, after spending a couple of months at home, it's fantastic to uh, actually sit with people in the office.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that. So to give us a little insight into that, I mean, you've been in the work from home model for some time, but uh, I was speaking to one of your colleagues, uh, uh, Vika Sinha, yesterday, and mm-hmm. he was saying that the management team has sort of taken a, a leadership role in, in not just getting back to the office, but I guess getting back to something that's sort of like the, uh, the new normal per se. Uh, so how's that working out? Is it like a number of days in, in the week and back in the office, or is it permanently back in the office? Because I'm, I'm sure you've been sort of in the work from home for some time, as we all have with regard to the COVID-19 pandemic, but we're sort of in the process, I guess, now of trying to get back to something slightly more normal.
0: Yes, I'm actually going into the office every day. And um, however, I still spend most of my time virtually. Um, So I have teams in uh, Prague and in uh, Pittsburgh and in Texas. So we're spending most of my days talking to the different teams. So unfortunately I cannot travel to them, but uh, I also meet up with people here in the office social distancing, but uh, still able to uh, put a face behind uh, the conversations, which is always nice.
1: Indeed. And uh, for our listeners, uh, when we're talking off air uh, a moment ago, if you don't mind me mentioning it, we were laughing about the fact that uh, we've kind of gone from what I describe as the uh, Instagram reality, where everything was sort of polished and clean and and a version of ourselves we put forward professionally to now we're used to uh, cats walking across people's screens and keyboards and puppy dogs in the background and kids doing that uh, running through the room like that uh, character that we, we used to giggle about from um, Southeast Asia for the BBC in the finance uh, reporting space where his kids that, ran into the room. And that's kind of a, a new normal now. And I imagine you've had a few moments like that yourselves in the last six yeah, to eight months. But,
0: but I think it's great because you really learn to know people. So you have your coworkers, you see what is in the background, you see uh, people coming in, and uh, you often, oh, okay, I see you have uh, – on certain posters on Disney or whatever, and uh, you get to chat and learn about their um, non-work activities. So that's, uh, I think it's great. It is it's indeed. a bit more of a, yeah. a uh, less, less just work and more about learning, people, uh, learning to know people.
1: Indeed, it's kind of rehumanized ourselves. I do have a funny one, though, for you. It'll make you laugh. Uh, I was on a call the other day, and two of my colleagues uh, on our team, and one looks up and goes, Oh, wait. Captain America, and the other one goes, oh, wait, you know, and and I realized, uh-oh, we're going to have a DC versus Marvel war. <laughs> and it was quite funny to watch, but it was it was good. Now, um, your role uh, as, as Senior Director of R&D and Worldwide R&D Lead for uh, DevOps and Open Mainframe and AI Ops, I'd love to dive into that in a moment and get to know what a, a day-in-the-life uh, profession of uh, a pair crawl entails and, and, and some of the challenges you deal with on a day-to-day basis in your job. But uh, before we do that, I wonder if you'd mind... Uh, if we did a little sideways segue to get to know you a little bit before we dive into your role, because I uh, understand um, you've got a Master's of Electrical Engineering. Uh, you're into running, uh, although I, someone uh, told me that you try a new sport every couple of years. Uh, uh, that is true. I, <laughs> which uh, I thought yep. was pretty funny. Like like you, I do that, but I tend to do that so that every couple of years I, uh, I do something new so that no one learns that I was really useless at the other thing.
0: Um, It's pretty much much the same with me, you know. It's kind (laughs) of like, uh, but but you get to try a lot of crazy sports, so paragliding, underwater rugby, did that for uh, some time, and uh, yeah, so um, trying to find something new. And um, I I started to feel I'm running out of good sports. The last few years has been recycling old sports, but uh, still uh, picking up new sports now and then. So.
1: Well, it's great. It keeps it interesting for us to uh, to keep fit as we get a little bit older. And uh, I've uh, I've ended up with that sort of uh, COVID bear sort of thing where I'm like, I won't admit how many, but I've got a few more kilos that follow me around the room that I'd like now and I've got to get out and burn them off. So I'm with you. I like trying different sports, like trading things, but I haven't tried underwater rugby. I must give that a go. Someone told me that effectively you're a geek at heart, which I assumed given the the type of stuff you tinker with for your day to day life. But one thing I was interested in was was... Uh, you, you tell me off air that uh, you enjoy your local breweries <clears throat> and that uh, you had the best pun I've heard for ages, and that is that you once tried aiming for the Guinness Book of Beer Drinking, which I think is hilarious because I'm guessing you're a fan of Guinness.
0: Yes, well, it's. Uh, so I was a geek growing up and didn't uh, drink at all coming to university and in Sweden. So um, I'm from Sweden, as you maybe can hear from the accent. And in Sweden as university, one of the things you um, did at the technical university was to compete, or some people competed in beer drinking. So after three weeks, I was the beer drinking champion of my university. So it's a bottle, and you have your hands behind your back, and you have to drink it as fast as possible. And if you turn a bottle upside down, it takes about six seconds for that bottle to empty. But when you do this competitive beer drinking, you really emptying the bottle in just about one second. Oh my god. (laughs) And 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 but we're taking the hands behind your back and so on takes a little bit longer time. So after three weeks I was champion of university I felt I'm really good at this. So uh, for three months I was practicing trying to get the world record in beer drinking Two days before the competition, they canceled the competition, and I gained ten pounds, and that was it. <laughs> Never more drinking beer fast. Now I'm enjoying my beer, drinking it slowly.
1: That's hilarious. I imagine doing that. You must have you must have blown into the bottle to produce a, a positive pressure, and then had the thing blow back. That's, that's bizarre. I love it. You so I'm guessing you're not competitive, but you like to come first, right? Um, yeah, exactly. That's brilliant. Well, you mentioned Sweden. I, I wonder if we could maybe uh, get to know a little bit about sort of your early years and you know, kind of where you grew up and, and and I guess sort of, you know, some of the uh, early inspirations that sort of head you down this path and you, particularly your career path.
0: Yeah. So I um, uh, grew up in a very small town, uh, kind of like 20,000 people or less. Uh, you biked everywhere and it was a great place to grow up So. You knew everybody. You biked everywhere. Uh, tried. Um, uh, was in different clubs every day. Played a lot of chess. So as I said, I was a geek growing up. I didn't want my mom to tell me uh, bedtime stories. I wanted her to tell me math problems. She hated math, so she always fell asleep, and then I was awake, mad at my <laughs> my, my mom falling asleep and not giving me more math problems. Um, but yeah, um, it was really great growing up in Sweden.
1: It's amazing. One of my favorite parts of the world, in fact, I've spent quite a bit of time in Schister, just out of Stockholm, uh, at oh, yeah. the uh, Ericsson uh, headquarters. And uh, last time I was there, I got up at some ungodly hour about four o'clock, thinking that it would be dark and I'd get out and get the sunrise and whatnot. And I woke up and it was bright, broad daylight. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. It's, it doesn't get dark here very often in winter. Nope. Uh, <laughs> it was bizarre. I woke up sort of feeling like I'd only just gone to sleep and then I realized, oh, no, it's four o'clock in the morning and it's broad daylight. Uh, and there's about Summers. six Summers are inches.
0: Fantastic.
1: Yeah, and about six inches of new snow on the ground, which froze me. But uh, that must have been amazing. And let's just quickly talk about your uh, career path and some of the uh, highlights you might have had. I'm sure you've had some yep. amazing opportunities. In your, in your given your background and and some of the amazing inspirations you've had in your family, and and no wonder you're a geek with all those sorts of influences. Um, uh, what are some of the first uh, experiences that have been working uh, and 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 going down this path? Because I, I understand from uh, Talking earlier that you started out uh, in in sort of a programming role, but then moved sort of more into, I guess, uh, what I'm assuming is more of a sort of an infrastructure, or even a software-defined infrastructure in some way space.
0: Yeah, I think uh, my first job was probably the one that uh, really uh, shaped me the most. Um, I was studying, taking a master's. I loved programming. So I just learned uh, structured programming, small talk in the days, operator-oriented development, which I really loved because it allows you to take a big problem and break it down. So it's so beautiful. And my first job was as a programmer, and um, I was so excited to get to meet these professional programmers because obviously in university you build more toy applications. But the experience was a little bit odd and it's actually shaped me because the first task was to uh, they had a big bill of, bill of material program they have fifty programs that need to be written and I noticed that the um, uh, they they thought it would take a couple of people uh, a couple of years and uh, they said okay get started with this and I noticed that using the structure programming in school, you could really develop the software in a much faster, different way than the people did at the company. Uh, It was a small company, not necessarily the um, uh, most uh, advanced development style. But I noticed that the things I learned in university allow you to develop software many times faster than people were doing at the company. So I asked them, well, can the libraries I developed, can that be shared and used by other people? And there was absolutely no interest. And I got so disappointed that um, the state of how people develop software in that company was so behind what we learned in university. So that was how, kind of like inspiring me, making me this, make a choice. Do I want to work as an individual programmer or do I want to try to influence how the world develops software? So that was actually the time I made a decision that I wanted to work for vendors that were um, helping people with best practices and tools to try to influence how thousands or hundreds of thousands of people develop software rather than trying to do development on my own. So I think that that was kind of like a wake-up experience that the state of how people develop software in the industry... Wasn't always up to par with what was possible. It's a big gap there. So kind of like closing that gap has always been my mission.
1: I love it. It is. It, it reminds me of my similar experience. I remember. Um, you know, I mean, I've come sort of from the Commodore 64 and the um, A2E sort of Apple uh, era. But uh, learning, uh, you know, in the early days that so you, you start out with Basic and then you learn things like Pascal and get a bit of structure, and then you move into assembler. But when I moved into teaching myself C and then eventually C and I'd learn about standard template libraries uh and, and then got a, a first real job in a in a finance company, same experience where it was like I couldn't work out why everybody was running the same code over and over and over. And they used to put right. these ideas up on a chalkboard going, We're gonna build this module and I'd end up going through the code and and you know, we didn't obviously have GitHub and tools like that or even source code repositories, but I would uh, I'd get copies of everyone's floppy disks and review the code and see if uh, I could reuse any of it. And they used to think it was an abhorrent idea. Oh, you're using my code. You know, you're stealing my work. I'm like, no, I'm trying to standardize, you know. And one time I got into trouble because uh, somebody yelled out, and they're like, oh, I don't know how my sort routine works. My sort routine's changed. And i'm like, oh, yeah, I changed it from quick sort to something else, and I forget what it was. And they're like, well, I don't know how that works. And i'm like, well, let me teach you. And like, no, don't change my code. And I'm like, well, it runs 40 times faster, you know. And I used to find it abhorrent, and I'm sure this sort of your experience, but I didn't, unfortunately, uh, make the same move you did. I kind of decided I'd take a break from application development and move into systems development. But yeah, it used to drive me crazy. I don't know if we've actually necessarily... Uh, uh, advanced and progressed that far, but certainly on, on the mainframe platform, it's something that can be standardized. Um, and, and you're in the US now. So how how did you make that sort of step from, uh, I guess, uh, your your early years in, in Sweden to sort of uh, making the move into the US?
0: Yeah. So one of the first jobs I had in Sweden was to work for a company that uh, did augmented uh, tools and processes uh, for augmented development. So I got a chance to 27 years ago uh come over to us to start up their us subsidiary so i started that up and did a lot of consulting around object oriented development and so on then that got acquired by a company in silicon valley i started dabble a little bit with iterative development in the early 90s but i got way more wrong than right because we didn't know really how to do it so uh, then i met some people uh, that had been doing iterative development for a long time and um uh we um together and um, created a, um, uh, w- what became uh, the um, uh, most broadly adopted uh, software engineering process that were kind of capturing best practices now to iterative development, test automation, how to use modern configuration management system, and so on. Just like like mid-90s, so I learned tons from working with many of the leading people in the world, because what we did was to capture best practices and how to do software development and put that that into this knowledge base and uh, then uh, work with different companies to adopt these best practices so a lot of fun and uh, great learning got a chance to work with some of the smartest people in the industry
1: wow that 's amazing well, I guess that fits perfectly into kind of where you are now as far as heading up uh, uh, you know part of the business around not just research and development but I guess uh, development in, in its uh, traditional sense from a software point of view and uh, and I guess that leads us into our overall Theme of the discussion today, which is uh, AI ops and and mainframe, and in particular connecting mainframes to the cloud. Um, maybe if we uh, kick off with uh, one of the questions I had prepared here for you with regard to how uh, mainframe creates a better hybrid cloud. Because I've been very much of the view that you know there's been a big shift to pivoting to cloud and adopting cloud models, cloud design principles. Everybody's talking yep. about microservices and. Uh, you know, the API economy and whatnot. And, and, and in many ways, I sit there thinking, have you never had your hands on a mainframe? You know, because <laughs> in my mind, the mainframe's been the biggest cloud box on the planet and the biggest Linux box on the planet for a long right. time. Um, but when we think about this whole space of how the mainframe creates a bit of hybrid cloud and, and I guess some of the shifts that have enabled that, um, yeah. how do you describe that when you when you sort of get to the situation when someone asks you, well, what does it actually mean? Well, what do you mean when you say the mainframe creates a bit of hybrid cloud?
0: Yes, I mean... And I'm one of these, um, when I started to work on the mainframe, uh, I did very little work back back in the days, right? But I kind of spent 30 years not touching the mainframe. And then coming back to the mainframe, I didn't at all realize how critical the mainframe still is. So starting with that, of um, course, like most people that are not working with a the mainframe. They just don't realize that whenever you're doing a credit card uh, transaction or uh, um, flying or doing any type of insurance claim and so on you 're touching the mainframe Indeed. and when you're tell, telling people that uh, the workers on the mainframe growing double did it every years, uh, people are not on the mainframe get get quite surprised. So for me, it was kind of like a wake-up call when I started to work on the mainframe six years ago. And what's been really exciting since then is to see how fast the technology on the mainframe is evolving. Uh, The adoption of um, open technologies, open APIs, allowing you to integrate both with a business application, but also um, uh, I got an opportunity to uh, be uh, one of the people that uh, helped create the the Zoe open source project, which is the first open source project uh, for ZOS. I mean, obviously Linux and a lot of open source software have been running on the mainframe for a long time, but this is targeting specifically ZOS. And the goal there is to open up and making sure that you, um, as a system programmer, as a developer, as a operator, we can make sure that environments you're using are very similar and have cloud-native access and, as much as possible, have the same type of experience that you have on other platforms. And also making sure that if you have a DevOps environment, if you're using Git and Jenkins, Visual Studio, and so on, for development on the distributed platform, you should be able to use that same environment on the mainframe. So still more work to do, but all of those things, um, uh, you want to make sure that mainframe is only different because it's more reliable and stable, but from... Other perspectives, like development perspective or how you are using AI ops environment, that should be as similar as possible to other platforms.
1: Right. And, and uh, you know, when I did some of my background and, and put some notes together in this, uh, uh, from what I understand, you spend most of your career, as you said before, on sort of what we would describe as a distributed side of the world. Yep. Um, and then over the last, I guess, you know, five or six years, you've sort of moved into this space. And, and from what I understand, you've led this evolution, as you said, into uh, basically what we would nowadays call DevOps. And. And I think what in your world you called AI ops, which I'd love to get into in a moment um, around the mainframe. I wonder if you could maybe firstly just describe what you mean when we sort of say AI ops, and then give us some of insights into kind of the the, the big key trends that we need to be aware of that you've observed of late uh, on the mainframe itself over the last few years.
0: Yeah. So, so the the problem you have. Um... Uh, if, if looking at first, uh, the mainframe is known to be reliable and and, and uh, the official name IBM Z for the mainframe, Z stands for zero downtime, right? So it's all about reliability. But when you're connecting the mainframe to the cloud, the shift that has happened is that the reason you see workload, uh, workload growth on the mainframe is that you obviously accessing your account much more often than you did 10 years ago when you had to go or 20 years ago when you had to go and talk to a teller to look at your balance and so on you keep on changing seats when you're flying uh, you keep on doing credit card transactions more and more rapidly so there's much more work hitting the mainframe so that is one of the challenges the the second challenge is that we have um much spikier workloads for example if it's bad weather everybody wants to rebook their flight if the finan- uh, the market goes up and down everybody can um do a transaction and so on before in a bank you were limited because you had maybe a thousand tellers so only thousand people could access your mainframe now you have like millions of customers that suddenly can do something did my paycheck arrive uh, because it's friday right so you have this spikier workload and that creates a, a, another problem and then on top of that with hybrid architectures you have many more moving parts so it's really hard to figure out um what is the problem and everybody's saying well it's not my problem it's somebody else you have to look for the needle in the high stack right and uh, as if that wasn't enough you have more and more rapid application ch- changes, right? So uh, in a data enterprise, you have like hundreds of uh, updates every day hitting the mainframe. So you really need to um, deal with all of that complexity. And the, one of the beauties with the mainframe is that there is tons of operational data that allows you to understand how things are running. But every year, you're almost doubling the operational data. So it's growing rapidly. So how do you make sense of all of that data, right? It, it's kind of like a huge, big data problem. So it's about finding that needle at a high stack. Along all of that operational data, what do I need to care about? How do I identify that? And how do I contextualize that information?
1: Well, I guess that leads me to my next question that I wanted to, to delve into, and that is that um, when we think about, all the things you described, one of the challenges is, is is deriving some form of insights from all the data we have on the platform, and as you said, then, then applying some context to that. And there's a term that comes up often around your world, uh, such as contextual insight and the ability to make sense of not just a lot of data, but disparate data. Um, yep. And on the mainframe, I guess, you know, as a foundational platform for computing in various forms and networking um, in today's digital economy, and as you said, like, you know, you yourself discovered that uh, the mainframe never went away. It's always been here, and, and, and it has been driving. Uh, you know, I think someone quoted something about eighty two, eighty three percent of the world's critical data is sitting on mainframe yep. still, and always was. And and you know, and many people can be fig- forgiven for forgetting that. Um, but it just keeps ticking on. It's like the little engine that can. Um, yep. But because of the ability for the mainframe to handle not just uh, a lot of data, but extreme workloads, and as you said, you know, with these massive bursts of 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 uh, sometimes random because of weather or whatever the case may be, or flight changes, without disruptions. Um, I wonder if you could maybe just dive into not just <clears throat> excuse me, not just the role of AI ops and why it's growing in popularity, but also just a little insight into kind of a, what you mean when you describe this concept of contextual contextual insights to allow you to make sense of the data you're getting there and, and, and drive some, I guess, you know, data-driven decision making from that.
0: Right. So so the if you're looking at uh, data, you um, uh, you have access to tons of data. But if you're looking at in a real world, if I give you a big list of names and then I give you a big list of activities and I give you a big list of dates and a big list of uh, uh, something else like food types or something like that, right – Great, you have tons of data, but what do you do with it? It doesn't tell you anything, right? So contextualizing that data means that we're putting a context behind it. So now you're saying that this person has this name, the activity is their favorite hobby, you have... um, uh the food is their favorite food the country is their favorite travel destination and so on so now you're starting to build instead of a big list of data you're starting to contextualize that so you understand what is the meaning of this data related to other types of data that you have so the first thing we need to do is to really extract the data from the different uh operating environments you have piece them right. together by having some domain context, understanding of them, and then maybe to provide analytics so we can say that, okay, uh, something is wrong in this area. For example, you have a slowdown in kicks. Well, what is the underlying reason for that now you can traverse that contextual model and saying that well it seems like the problem is really related to db2 and the reason we have a slowdown on db2 is with yesterday last night's uh, uh, application change we changed some tables that creates a problem right so so it kind of like allows you to reason uh about what is happening and identify root cause for a problem that is popping up.
1: I imagine, in many ways, you know, you're applying uh, not just modern technology, but modern design principles and and modern capabilities to to age-old problems that just you know get bigger because we get more data, more complex data. The data is moving faster; it's moving in in, in different you know, vectors directionally. Uh, but we, we we still need to make sense of it. But also, as you alluded to there, not just the data itself, but the underlying systems. And that is that if someone's made a change to some code and there's yeah. a performance issue. And it's kind of in many ways using the, the smartest tools we can in the form of machine learning and, and various forms of AI models and tools to actually uh, self-heal and understand the under underpinning platform and the operating system and the apps. But also then to be able to you know, get beyond just uh, text forms and 132-column line printer reports to intelligent dashboards and, and real-time, I guess, you know, single pane of glass dashboards that right. give us business intelligence, right? This, uh, you know, when, when we look at what's happening inside Broadcom and certainly other things you're working on, I guess this moves us towards uh, what I've heard described as the journey towards self-healing systems. And, and in many ways I think it's described as like an, an, an incremental path that uh, – uh, we get away from, you know, something goes bump in the night and we have to turn it all off and figure it out to the system worked out what was wrong itself and shut down that piece of code and then reinstantiated the previous version and continues to run the, the, the job itself. What what does self-healing mean in, in your world when you sort of think about the self-space of applying uh, the likes of DevOps to something to sort of not just self-heal the platform, but also the, the ecosystem, the, the applications and the data around it?
0: Right. Well, I think it's, um, the first thing is that it's, self-healing is a big word, right? And it's uh, typically very overused and used in marketing by companies to... Uh, it, it's easy that we oversell what is the order possible in terms of you install something and somebody have a health, self-healing system. But if you're looking at it, there are more and more things you can start to um, detect um, proactively. That's the, the, the first thing, right? And if you're looking at once you have this contextual model, now you can apply AI or machine learning to ta- start to detect patterns. That when this happens and this happens, we have a tendency to run into this problem. So the first one is to apply pattern detection. And that allows you to, identify that we are likely moving towards a problematic situation so you can take action before you have a system outage or or in other ways have a negative impact to users so that is the first thing the second thing is that um We've always had automation, and automation is growing. We see that growing very rapidly in popularity. People are uh, investing more and more in automation. And, and I see the role of automation to be at least uh, bifold. Uh, the first one is that automation can help you to detect that this, the state of the system is not, uh, it's not in a desirable state. So you can use automation to self-correct, to automatically kind of like put the system into a better state. That allows you to do small corrections all the time without requiring human involvement. And that's one way of improving the reliability of your system. But also, when you have this pattern detection that detect that something is wrong, um, and then you can uh, build automation that if this goes wrong, here is automation that can help you put the system back in a stable state. And this is where... Um, it will be maturing of uh, uh, how companies think about this, because typically if, if I'm a system programmer, the last thing I want to do is to install some software that take corrective actions without me being in, in control, right? So what we see is that companies are um, using pattern detection to understand what are the problematic things with your system. And you would like to have a recommendation on automation, but this is where we talk about trusted automation that you will have a recommendation that if this is problematic, here is automation that you can trigger, but really, what you are looking for is to build the trust over time uh, so people can say that, yep, I taking this uh, trigger this automation numerous times, and for the last year's worked for me, that's when you can move towards having the uh, Uh, The detection of a pattern automatically trigger the automation without human involvement. But this is a process, right? Um, You will have one area after the other where you can do pattern detection uh, and more and more automation. And then you're building more and more scenarios where you can move towards a self-healing system.
1: One of the things that uh, comes up regularly when I talk about some of these topics with people, certainly at boardroom level where <clears throat> they're senior executives and they're not quite as technical as they wish they were, is that you know, a lot of this in principle always sounds great when it's uh, on a whiteboard. But then getting it into operation and practice uh, is, is, I think you described it earlier, as an incremental path. Uh, yeah. And that you know, when, when people talk about it, there's this sort of comment that, oh, look, you know, people are always selling it. Um, but realistically, what's possible today versus uh, you know the path forward and where we're going? Uh, I wonder if you could sort of walk us through that sort of journey uh, from your experience over the last few years, where the ideal scenario of applying AI ops to a problem, either the platform or the ecosystems in, in itself, or the apps, or, or even the data inside it, uh, kind of where it started, where we are today, and kind of in an ideal world where we're going to.
0: Yeah. So so um, um, it's. Uh as we said, it's very much an incremental process, right? So uh, what we see is that For this to work, it's not enough to just install something and then suddenly you can apply AI on large scale. Uh, What we are doing is to develop the domain models that gives you some generic insights. What we we notice when we work with customers, we need to then merge our domain knowledge with the domain knowledge of a customer. So we're working with their leaders to further tune our systems to make sure that um, for example, if we're detecting problems, we're only flagging the ones they really care about. So you need to work with a customer to identify that, yeah, I know that this could be a problem, but in my world, I don't care about it. So you need to allow them to specify rules and apply additional knowledge to tune and only detect the things they care about, right? So I think that um, it will be, uh, it always is a um, Um, merging of uh, applying out-of-the-box solutions and then tune it working with customers. So that's something we typically do. Um, And automation, there's no secret around it, right? You can have um, uh, some out-of-the-box automation and then you need to invest in building that. But the payoff is typically very good uh, because once you start to increase automation, there is more and more savings in in, uh, personnel. But what we've seen over the last couple of years is real progress in terms of allowing us to um, uh, apply AI on a larger scale. Still, uh, I would say that you see more of early adopters at this stage. And what I would expect is that we pretty soon are moving into maturing of that market.
1: Right. You know, there's been a lot of big trends uh, around the world that have taken place very recently. <clears throat> and, you know, cloud is one of them, which I'd like to get into in the moment. <clears throat> Excuse me. But also, um, you know, the whole concept of big data. And it always reminds me of my sort of late teens and early 20s and sort of working on mainframe platforms where we didn't realize it. But in many ways, the, the, the mainframe platform was sort of the original big data platform in many ways. And then we sort of went through the big iron sort of mid-range space with, you know, various platforms from the likes of Sun Microsystems and other brands that sort of brought up big, heavy boxes that looked and felt like mainframes but really uh, weren't and uh, kind of you know, ran platforms like Unix. And then you know we ended up with the sort of the, I guess, the early 2000s to mid-2000s where we had you know, commodity PC clusters and, yep. and technologies like Hadoop came out and sort of you know people like Doug, Hutt, Doug Cutting and Mike Caffarella and, and early work around the uh, open source search engine that they took to Yahoo called Nutch. Uh, and we worked out that uh, you know, we could put not just uh, gigabytes and terabytes, but petabytes on these things. But they introduced all these problems that when we went full circle, it was like, yeah, but that problem's been solved for six decades on another platform. And people were like, really? <laughs> Which one? And we're like, the mainframe. And they're like, oh, they're still around, you know. And so I think somewhere in many ways with that whole trend around just, say, big data, for example, you know, we had this rush from the dot-com boom through to Web 2.0 chasing these unicorns, as they call these billion-dollar valuation companies, but people forgot this platform that was still powering many of our biggest mission-critical systems um, had all these features. You know, when you think about the type of data, you mentioned something before, but like, you know, banking, financial services in general, wealth management, insurance. You know, as you said, airlines. You got state and federal governments, yep. retail, manufacturing. Uh, you know, a lot of people forget the things like medical systems and all our health records are on mainframes and. You know, defence systems, everything from missile control systems to to you know human planning and putting people out in the field, um, transport logistics, and you know even telco infrastructure, all sitting on these platforms. And uh, you know, large percentages, like you know between the seventies and eighty percent of some of that critical data, it, it must have been an interesting sort of insight to sort of get into the space and say, you know, some of these big trends. And I'd love to get into cloud, for example, connecting mainframes to the cloud and and where that's gone. Because you mentioned the the Zoe project that uh, yep. you've had a, a strong hand in. These trends, when they come up, you must sort of sit there and scratch your head and think, how, did, how do people miss this? Like this, this, this big data capability, this cloud capability has always been there. I guess the trend now is to move that connectivity to the cloud. What, what, what does that conversation look like in, in your world sort of when you get to that point and go, mm, let me tell you what the mainframe does?
0: yeah and and just a good good another example right if you're looking at going back to the self healing right there's uh, the mainframe always been somewhat self healing to a larger degree and that's one of the reasons it's uh, very reliable so it's it's not a new concept on the mainframe as as you said but yeah it's um it's uh it's always been uh, like a cloud server as you say so many of these concepts are not new i think the Trend or the change is that while the mainframe has been, uh, in many ways, a big cloud server, and that's its origin, the original cloud server. Uh, I do think that the mainframe, for a while, uh, was behind on thinking about open standards and so on. So I think some of these movement is not about introducing new concepts to the mainframe but rather leveraging the standardized ways that have evolved on the distributed side and making sure that those standardized approaches, whether it's uh, uh, RESTful APIs, uh, we talked about the DevOps environment abuse and so on, that, that they really should work just as well on the mainframe and the mainframe should be as open. So it's not a new paradigm, but I do think there is some Uh, a lot of new innovation that is needed on the mainframe to really reintroducing concept, but now with more modern technologies. One of the problems, and what surprised me, for example, is how many companies today are still doing greenfield development on the mainframe. And it's not because we haven't had more modern tools on the mainframe. We've had it for a number of years, but companies have underinvested So they are more behind on how they do development on the mainframe than they are on the distributed side. And that is the bigger problem. There is a gap between what is the order possible And based on the investment level, what are people actually following in terms of developed environment, uh, uh, availability of RESTful APIs, you can easily access information, uh, modernizing your operational environment, and so on. So there is a gap there that I think is um, bigger than it is on the distributor side. So one of the key things, what, what, what we need to do is to close that gap. And the key thing there is the manager decision makers that sit on the money today, they come from cloud environments, the know AWS, but have very little insight into the mainframe. And we need to educate them on the, uh, the value of the mainframe, what is the starter po- uh, order of the possible, and making sure that they understand that the same type of development practices, the same type of operational environments, the application of AI and so on, uh, is possible on the mainframe and sometimes ahead if you're looking at applying big data and so on.
1: It reminds me of a project I did about 12 years ago where one of the largest transport and logistics companies in the world I had the opportunity to look at uh, consolidating the data center environments. And I was having yep. to be talking to the CIO and I said to her, I noticed there's a lot of really old trucks in the field with your logo on them and 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 the parking lots outside and the maintenance bays outside – lot of very old trucks that I would call collector's items. And when I was talking to one of the drivers and asked if I could jump up in the cab and have a look, I said, you know, I used, to, I used to drive these around the workspaces of my dad's company up in the the, the, the highlands of Papua New Guinea like decades ago, and they're all manual. Um, why are you driving all these old trucks? And she said, oh, well, you know, the company has a view that, 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 you know, if it works, don't change it, et cetera, introduce risks. And I said, yeah, but, you know, automatic transmissions have been around for a long time, and..." Uh, They're intelligent fuel control systems now, so you're probably burning a lot more fuel than you needed to with these old diesel engines and driver fatigue with having to manually change gears. It it just doesn't make sense. Curiously, she wrote it all down and took it back. And then it came back from the CEO and they're like, actually, this is a good point. We've banked on our old physical platform of these old trucks that we've been using for years, thinking we'd get more money and ROI out of them. But then we took your comments to heart as being a geek and said, are we using more fuel by driving these old manual trucks? And is there more risk by people having to manual gear change? And it turns out the answer is yes. And then you know, five or six years later, the entire fleet was updated. And uh, I had the same conversation with a driver in the car park while I was waiting to go and meet with the CIO again a few years later. And I said, oh, how's the change been? He said, oh, you have no idea. My left left arm doesn't have a bigger bicep than my right arm anymore because I'm not manually changing the gears. And and uh, we're using sort of, you know 10% less fuel because these trucks are more efficient and, and automatic transmissions and so forth. But he said the main thing is that we just enjoy our jobs better. Things get done smarter, uh, right. and we're not driving these big, massive 42-foot containers around the place. Now we're getting different size trucks. And I would look back and thinking, well, you know, in many ways, this matches technology because that was kind of where I came from. It was like, wow, you've got these big, monolithic trucks, and they're manual. And I was like, gosh... But I imagine you running into that scenario now when you mentioned like projects like Zoe and some of the DevOps and automation you're yep. working on, that you go into environments, as you said, where people who potentially control the funding may have had a big sunk cost in infrastructure 5, 10, 15 years ago and want to get every last cent out of value out of that, but don't realize that by trying to get the last cent of value out of their legacy systems – they're not getting the benefit of the agility and the flexibility the automation and the risk reduction and the reduced time to market on new services. That also impacts their revenue. That must be something you come across and probably frustratingly occasionally as well.
0: Yeah, and and luckily I see a pretty big change the last uh – I would say three years. I I think there is much more appreciation now than uh, if I go six years back uh, in terms of that people need to invest in a mainframe, how essential it is. So I do think there is a change in the conversation Um, and it's an ongoing education of people, uh, but more and more companies are, uh, I mean, if you go uh, six, 10 years back, many people try to get off the mainframe. It's only will have a few years left and so on. We know that that, uh, that, that, Uh, didn't realize (laughs) Um, but now you see that companies uh, go through a second wave of becoming a digital enterprise. The first wave was very much about um, innovating around how you accessed different services mobile and so on and driving a more personal interaction with your core business processes. And now to be competitive, you need to innovate around your core processes. But where does those core processes reside? Well, they reside on the mainframe. Where does the data reside? It resides on the mainframe. So now you're moving from innovating on how you interact with customers, which is more mobile, web type of technology. Uh, to innovating on around your core systems, and that 's why you see many more application changes with that, you need to upgrade your operational environment that 's where AI ops come in. so we really see that shift. And that's also why we see the workload growing, so a um, uh, strong di- double-digit, right, uh, because all of these shifts. But with that comes a realization that you need to modernize how you're running systems and how you're developing systems on the mainframe. So, so it's really been a big change over the last just three years, I feel.
1: I guess one of the things I'd like to uh, uh, close out on is that um, when we think about all these, I mean, it sounds complex. It's definitely fascinating but complex uh one of the things that i'm sure our listeners will want to sort of get some insight from you given that you are literally at the not just the leading edge but the bleeding edge in many ways if you'll pardon the pun uh and 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 leading the market in this space is you know where where do people get started what are some of the recommendations you could offer as to you know you've v- very very well and succinctly introduced some of these big topics around ai ops and and uh, yeah. and all of the environments around that and some of the key benefits of the platform but uh Without it sort of being too complex, I mean, it, it, you know, a lot of organizations are going say, okay, well, wh- where do we start? What are the first key steps? When you're having these conversations with people for the first time, what do you recommend to them as to, you know, where do they start in this journey? What are the natural steps they take? And how do they get to the same place that, that you'd like them to be?
0: Right. Well, what we often start uh, our discussion with customers is um – uh, suggesting that they do what we call mri and and, and uh, the abbreviation uh, stands for mainframe resource intelligence but we use mri as an abbreviation for a good reason we wanted to think in terms of the medical term when mri right you scan uh, your body and 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 have a detailed view of what what is working and not working and we're doing a similar thing of your mainframe environments we uh, have a cloud-based environment Environment where you can go in and scan uh, your mainframe environment and um, uh, you can analyze different ports and, and, uh, and uh, help you to optimize and then for opportunities where to start. One of the big problems with uh, the companies have is that they have no funds and they have no resources. So one of the things we're looking at this scanning or this MRI is to look at other areas where they can do cost savings by better optimizing their mainframe and that can free up funds. So MRI is often uh, main, uh, mainframe resource intelligence typically where we start. And with that, besides the scanning uh, comes the discussions around analyzing this, then have a discussion um, that can go in a number of diff- different directions if you go into a ops. It's a discussion about where are the low-hanging fruits? Where are you facing the biggest problems? So we can focus on solving those problems as you uh, deploy a AI-op solution. So that gives us a roadmap with uh, what are the uh, biggest hitters for your organization, because what matters for company A may be very different from what matters from company B. And it's all about identifying incremental progress, get some quick wins, and then move on from there. It's not a one step, it's a journey and you need to start taking the first step.
1: I like that. I think there's a lot of wisdom in, in getting some early quick wins, as you said, but also there's no better incentive in business than a cost saving, is there? It's a, if you can demonstrate that people can take the current infrastructure and current resources and 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 current platforms and tools and data and and somehow... Reduce the time to get an outcome, and also reduce the cost to do that. They immediately start paying a lot more attention. I would uh, like to wrap up with one last thing that I often do with my uh, customers. I mean, you've given some great insights into all the things you're doing, and, uh, and thank you so much for sharing so much personal background. It gives us the chance for our listeners to get to know you. Uh, it's been fascinating to learn more about AI ops and, and the whole challenge of bringing some of the new technologies like cloud to the mainframe platform. But uh, Over the next three to five years, I wonder if I was to say to you, Pear, if I hand you a a virtual crystal ball uh, and ask you to gaze into it for a moment, uh, I don't expect you to predict the lotto numbers, although if you do know those, can I get them? But um, if you were to offer any thoughts and and, and insight into kind of, you know, given that you are leading this space in many ways and that you've got insights that a lot of people don't have for various reasons – next three to five years over the horizon, what are some of the big things that people should be thinking about and potentially talking about in their boardrooms to consider as as these new trends and changes come over the horizon and they need to prepare for them?
0: So I think the, um, uh, let me, maybe two things. One is, what are the things we talked about? Um, uh, DevOps, the open up your systems, uh, especially AI ops. What I think is, Uh, happening is that um, they're a little bit different maturity. you probably have DevOps adoption is more at, um, if you're using uh, Jeffrey Moore's uh, Crossing the Chasm, I would say DevOps is probably moving into um, uh, early majority. But Aops, for example, is typically more early adopters. There are a few people doing it and, and getting results. What I expect to happen over the next three to five years is that we see much broader adoption of applying uh, machine learning, um, uh, upgrading your operational environment to um, uh, benefit from AI solutions so that is one big trend that I think will happen maturing that we will see early majority and late majority moving uh, towards that type of solutions. The other area we're looking at more big trend is I think we will soon see Containers on ZOS, and if you're looking at, we already have containers and Kubernetes supported through uh, Linux on Z, right? So anything running on Linux runs on Linux Z. You also have the notion of uh, ZCX, which is the notion that you on on a ZOS address space you can run a Linux instance and hence containers. So that exists, but once you have um, uh, containers on ZOS it opens up for a lot of innovation in how you run operations. So what we would expect is probably a crisper separation of operations for infrastructure and operations for applications, similar to what you have for on distributed side. We see that a little bit happening with mainframe shops, but to a fairly limited extent. Once you have containers introduced in the U.S., I would expect that you see much more rapid um, Um, separation of those two operational type and with that the the application operations merging with DevOps and I think that a lot of interesting evolution of uh, the solutions on the mainframe and how we're working as that becomes a um, a more commonly adopted uh, technology with uh, containers also on zos but that is a few years out
1: wow Amazing insight. And look, I think that'd be very exciting. It, uh, I mean, as you said, there's an enormous adoption of some of these technologies like, uh, uh, you know, containers and platforms like Docker and uh, and, and orchestration automation tools uh, in the operational space, such as Kubernetes in various you know, private or public clouds. But to see that uh, transition back onto sort of the mainframe platform so that there's more of a seamless integration between the development processes, the design patterns, and access to data, yet with still the controls that come with Mainframe, I think it'd be very exciting. So some great food for thought for people who are challenged both with uh, business and technology and funding requirements to sort of look forward and go, what do we need to be doing in the next few years? And certainly an opportunity to kind of revisit the uh, the, the opportunity to leverage the Mainframe platform more than, than many organizations might have in the last uh, five or six years. Well, uh, Per, it's been fantastic. It's been an hour with you. Thank you so much for making time to catch up with me. It's been long overdue, and I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, uh, both as a, a geek and a mainframer myself for many years. And uh, and, and, and missing spending as much time and on hands-on keyboard with mainframes as I used to. Uh, and congratulations on the amazing role you have, uh, sort of you know, heading up R&D in, the, in this mainframe division and some of the exciting projects you're working on, like Zoe and so forth. I think it's just exciting that we've got people like you leading us in the charge towards the new brave future. And I think if uh, next time I do a credit card transaction or a, or a flight booking, I'll have you in the back of my mind knowing that... Uh, you're there uh, making sure that things keep uh, running through the night and applying uh, AI ops to keep things self-healing uh, and into a brave new future. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on the show again soon to uh, continue the conversation into where we've gone in the next uh, six or so months since we spoke.
0: I hope so, uh, Des. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, you have a fantastic day. Uh, it was great to talk to you.